We're going to be in Mark chapter 10 today, but before we get there, I don't know if you noticed, uh, last night on our Facebook page around dinner time, uh, the creative arts team put a documentary, a link to a documentary there that you can go home and watch. Some of you have seen it already, or if in your small group this week, you want to take a moment and watch that, maybe before you get into the discussion questions that are in your app this morning, uh, you can take a few minutes and watch. I was really inspired in the last couple of weeks to see this very short documentary of a man by the name of Adolfo Kaminsky. And he was part of the French resistance living in Paris during World War II. He's a really interesting guy and his life is, is, really, is really compelling and no one really knew what he was doing until just recent years and now his family is starting to find out and uncovering some unbelievable truth and the tagline that really captured my attention was that if I sleep for an hour, 30 people die. Now I don't know what you do for a living, okay? I don't know if you're a CPA, I don't know if you're like working customer service, I don't know if you're a mechanic or whatever, but there's a pretty good chance that you can go to lunch or you can sleep at night and not have to worry about people dying. But this was a true statement for a few days in the life of this man. If I sleep for an hour, 30 people die, but he wasn't really doing his job. He was doing some volunteer work, if you will. You see, Aldolfo, earlier in his life, he had gone to work at a shop where they dye garments. So the garments would come in and they come in, I guess, pretty plain muslin fabric, whatever it might be, pretty plain linen colors. And if you want the garment to be red, blue, black, or something in between or all of the above, then you, he learned how to do this. And so he learned how to use chemicals and to manipulate things in all kinds of different ways. And then he began to use his knowledge to do some things that were kind of illegal, actually very illegal. He learned how to forge documents. And so he's forging birth certificates, marriage certificates, anything that you might need to get by wherever it might be in life, he had learned how to do it. And in World War II in Paris, many of the people were given ration cards. And particularly if you had a ration card that had a red stamp on it that had the word Jew in French on the ration card, it might mean that you were not going to get fed on a daily basis the way everybody else would. In fact, many times you wouldn't get fed at all. But children as young as the age of two were responsible for having these cards. And so this man who has this knowledge of how to manipulate chemicals, he could somehow take a chemical and just remove the red Jew stamp that was on the card and leave everything else as it is. So that's kind of a cool trick. But cool tricks became more meaningful one evening when he is told this. There are 300 people who are about to be sent to Auschwitz. And history has told us, but it was even known then, that Auschwitz was perhaps the most terrible of the Nazi death camps. 300 people are going to be sent to Auschwitz in three days if they don't each have three documents. 900 documents need to be created in the next 72 hours. It's an impossible task, he said. But he went to work. And he worked, and he worked, and he worked, and he worked. Being as meticulous as he could, as he began to get tired, he continued to work until ultimately he just passed out from fatigue. And then he woke up again, and he continued to work, and he worked, and he worked, and he worked. 
And just in the nick of time, all 900 documents were completed. And 300 people were saved. 300 Jewish people were saved by the man that history would now call the Paris Forger. And it has just been uncovered in the last few years that the Paris Forger saved over 10,000 Jewish lives during World War II. There are great battles. There are great names. There are people who go down in history who we all know of, yet nobody would know this guy's name. His family would not even know what he, is, what he had done. No one whose life that he saved, at least particularly in the case of these 300, none of those 300 people would know who was responsible for saving their lives. I was a stranger to them, he said. And now their spouses and their children and their grandchildren, and one day their great-grandchildren are the beneficiaries of a man who decided I could not just not do anything. Rather, I had to get involved. There were so many corpses, he said. Something had to be done. And he had a skill. He had talents. He had gifts that nobody else had. And he took the invitation to do something great. What a great life his family can now celebrate. I believe there's something inside every single one of us that longs for greatness. I mean, this is why college football coaches get fired, right? Because nobody has been longing for that seven-win season. This is why pro football coaches get fired since we're in football season. No one wants another eight-win season. We want the playoffs. We want the Super Bowl. No matter what it takes, we're longing for greatness. And I think there's something inside of each of us We're longing for greatness in our lives, longing for our lives to matter, longing to count in the lives of someone else. We want great marriages, great families. We want our kids to be great. There is something about this in every single one of us. And I want to tell you something. It's not selfish. I believe God put it there. In fact, I believe that Jesus himself, as we're going to see today in Mark chapter 10, Jesus calls his followers to greatness. His disciples the ones who are going after him, trying to become like him, who have crossed that line of faith, who have said, I believe you are the son of God, the followers of Jesus. And that's how many of you would describe yourself in here today. He has called you to greatness. Now, Jesus is walking with his disciples up to Jerusalem from the area around the Dead Sea. And they're just below Jericho and they're getting ready to come into Jericho. And and it's this long kind of uphill walk all the way to Jerusalem. But before they even get into the city, down at the bottom of the hill, Jesus pulls his disciples aside. He had lots of people following him, but he pulls the 12 disciples aside, including Judas. And he said, guys, in just a a little while now, we're going to get into Jerusalem. And when we get up to the city, there's going to be a plot to kill me. I'm going to be killed. And then I'm going to rise from the dead. And we can tell that the disciples really did not understand, even though he's pulled them to the side and had this conversation with them, that the disciples really don't know what he's talking about. And in response to him, saying, I'm going to be killed. I'm going to suffer. Here is what two of his disciples say in Mark chapter 10, verse 35. 
And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now pause there for just a moment. Matthew accounts for this. Mark is writing down what Peter told him happened. So this is an eyewitness account, and it's accounted for the same way every time it's talked about. As soon as Jesus says, I'm going to suffer and die and rise again, this is what they said to him. Would you do for us whatever we ask of you? What is wrong with these guys? And he said to them, what do you want me to do? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Jesus, we want to be your number one and your number two forever and ever. Amen. That's what we want. And these guys have been walking with Jesus the longest, except for Andrew and Peter. I mean, these were the sons of thunder. And Jesus has just said to them, I'm going to suffer and die. And they say, what do we get out of that? Truly. Jesus responds and tells them, listen, I'm going to die. I'm going to suffer. Can you share in that suffering? Can you share in that death? In fact, you will share in that death. And then all the disciples find out what's been going on and what's been been talked about over the last few moments. And they are all upset. And I really think they're upset, not because James and John have asked to be one and two, but because they asked first, because I think they were all thinking it. We all want to be in charge. And then skipping down to verse 42, Jesus called to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. Now, your translation may say high officials, but that word for rulers or high officials and the Greek, it has within it the word mega. We want to be awesome, Jesus. We want to be great, We want to be great. Would you supersize us, Jesus, because we want to be a big deal. We want the title. We want the status because with the status comes the stuff. And we want to be known. We want to be in charge because that's what greatness is, isn't it? And Jesus says, not so fast. He doesn't rebuke them for asking to be great. He just shows them, and he's about to show all of us, a different way to get there. A way that cannot be taken away. Verse 43, he says this. It shall not be this way among you, the way it is with everybody else. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. We're going to look at what Jesus said in the next verse in the next few moments. But can I tell you, when Jesus gets done with this entire statement, they say absolutely nothing. He leaves them speechless with these words. And sometimes Jesus does that. Sometimes we get Bible verses or great sayings of Jesus, little memes on Instagram, and we look at them in the morning and we clap and we cry and we say, this is awesome, we share it. And then we realize this is going to be really difficult to live out. But this is absolutely brilliant. I want you to hear me now. Jesus offers an invitation to greatness that can never be taken away. Jesus offers an opportunity to great living, to a great life that can never be taken away. You see, the way that culture measures greatness, all of those things can be taken away. 
Possessions fade, and despite all of your hard work and preparation, they can be lost. Titles can be stripped away. Even if you're the CEO, the board might decide that the industry has moved past you, and we don't need you anymore. We're going with somebody else. You can Influence can wane. You can lose followers. People will decide to follow someone else or, or someone newer. Listen, if you're trying to find meaning and greatness and, and security in your title and your possessions— in your status in life, or in your relationships, then most likely you are dealing with fear, insecurity, anxiety, depression, restlessness on a daily basis because all of those things can be taken away in just a moment and you know it. Or if nothing else, you're dealing with apathy because you've decided that greatness is never going to describe your life and for whatever reason, it will elude you forever. But I want you to hear this again. It doesn't have to elude you because Jesus offers an invitation to greatness that can never be taken away. No matter what your fear is in, no matter what your insecurity is in, no matter what your restlessness is in, Jesus' Jesus's invitation to greatness can transform any circumstance, any relationship, any life, and turn it into a great one. But it's a different path than what you have been told. It's not about upward mobility or self-interest. Jesus says, whoever wishes to be great, and that's important. It's okay to want that. It's okay to not strive for mediocrity. It's okay to desire greatness. If you want to be great, he says, you have to be willing to serve. Greatness begins with service. Jesus said you have to be willing to be a servant. The word he uses for servant in the Greek, it's the word where we get deacon. Have you ever been in a church where they have deacons? If any of you grew up Baptist or some other Methodist or something like that, then you were in a church who had had deacons. These were special people, right? I mean, these were the guys who could vote unless the whole church voted, but these were the guys whose votes really counted no matter what everybody else said. These are the guys who counted the votes. These are the important people, right? The deacons, they've got the office, they've got the, the title, but that's not how the word is used ever in scripture and that's not how Jesus used it. He's, he's talking about people who are ministering in the church. And if you are a, a deacon, if you are a servant at Westridge, if you are a volunteer team member in the church, or if you're a ministry team leader, if you're a group leader, a coach, a head coach, whatever that you do, no matter who that is, you are supposed to be the chief servants in the church, willing to do whatever it takes for the sake of others. That's what Jesus has called you to, service. And then he uses another word, and I think this is definitely the word that left them speechless. Not just be willing to be a servant. Oh, that's nice. Okay. I'll get Peter's water every once in a while. That's fine. That's no big deal. I'll go grab a cup of coffee for John every once in a while. I feel right of something nice about me in the book somewhere. I mean, that'd be cool. You know, I'll go take care of these guys if, if, if they'll do that. But then he uses another word. He says, if you want to be first, I want to be first. You ever want to be first? I want to be first in line. Okay, I'm not messing around. I want to be first. I want the best. I want the stuff. Come on, I want to be first. If you want to be first, first in anything, first at the table, Jesus says, then you must be a slave. Now nobody's talking. You must be a slave. And the word that we believe Jesus used in the Greek, it's the word doulos. It means you've been purchased and you have no rights. If someone accuses you of something, you have no right to defend yourself in court. You are guilty, period. You don't own anything. You have no privileges. You don't even have a name unless your master gives you a name. And then if they get tired of that name, 
they can change your name. And the Apostle Paul talks about this type of slavery later on in the New Testament. And he calls us slaves to Christ. He calls himself a slave to Christ. And he gives us that charge. And that sounds great. Yeah, we'll be a slave to Jesus. We can do that. He died for us. He's risen from the dead for us. Like that sounds really noble, something worth doing. But that's not what Jesus is talking about when he says it in Mark 10. He says, if you want to be great among these people, then you have to serve them and be a slave to them. Can you imagine the disciples looking around at each other? Really? If you want to be great. I mean, if you want to, you can look around right now if you want. If you want to be great, then you got to be willing to serve. You got to be willing to be a slave, to have no rights. And this invitation to greatness is the posture. It's in the posture that Jesus has called us to. It's no wonder they stood there speechless. I mean, what would you say? What do you say to Jesus when he says, this is the key to greatness? How would you describe your marriage? Is it great? If it's mediocre, you won't say anything. You'll just sit there quiet and really uncomfortable and hope that I move on quickly. I understand. But you did not get married for mediocre. At least I hope not. How would you describe your kids? Mediocre? Probably not. And if you do, don't do that to their face. That's not nice. Okay? I like stepping on toes. Let's do this again. How would your kids describe you? Ouch. Great life. Jesus is giving us an invitation to a great life. How about your friendships? How about your friendships? How about those people that you spend time with, a lot of time with, a little bit of time with? Are you kind of keeping track of everything you do for one another? Love keeps no records. Jesus' invitation to a great life is one of serving. If you want a great marriage, don't let that spouse outserve you. If you want great kids, don't let them outserve you. Kids, if you want great parents, hello, don't let your parents outserve you, all right? If we want great families, if you want great relationships at work, at school, wherever you live, work, and play, then people of God, to show them the greatness that Jesus has called us to, we must not let anyone outserve us. We must take this posture as slaves to them and to the living God. That's what he has called us to do. Greatness is waiting for us. And in the Christian life, if we would take this attitude that Jesus has given in just a brief moment with his disciples, we truly believe, I truly believe, and it's part of the reason why we've, we've placed this teaching in this series, I believe it would start a block party and a real life jamming like can't get enough people in the house block party. If the people of God would serve, if the people of God would take hold of greatness the way that Jesus has called them to. Can I ask you a question? Have you taken on to the challenge that we've given in the last few weeks in this series? Maybe you've missed the last few weeks or maybe you're here for one and jump back in today. Let me remind you, we've, we've been going off every week. We've been saying that we're gonna give you one clear thing 
And we're using this acronym, BLESS. And a few weeks ago, I challenged you, if you would, to begin to pray for someone. And we identified those people as neighbors. Maybe not your physical neighbor, but a neighbor is anyone who comes across your path. So have you begun to pray for anyone? And perhaps some of you then have had the opportunity then to to have a conversation where you're just listening to them, where you're wrapping around all of your attention to them and you are totally about their life. You have no agenda. You're not trying to convert them to your political party. Goodness knows nobody's doing that right now. You're not trying to convert them to anything. You're not trying to even convert them to Jesus. You are just listening. And then maybe you've had the opportunity to take it a step further and to eat with them. Or to share a pumpkin spice latte with them if you want Jesus to be in your midst where two or more pumpkin spice lattes are gathered. Something, he's in the midst. I'll stop. So, but now the invitation ratchets up just a notch. You've begun with prayer. You've begun listening. By the way, if you've missed anything or if you haven't done this or you've just kind of been thinking about, that sounds like a good idea. You can start anytime, okay? You can restart anytime, No judgment. Just begin to pray for one other person. But if you've been walking along this path, you've been beginning to pray, you've been listening, you've had the opportunity to eat or whatever it might be, now this invitation goes for something truly great that can never be taken away. You were invited to serve that person God has put in your path with no accolades. You've been invited to serve them not expecting anything in return. You've been invited to serve them not so for something you can get out of the relationship, but only for what you can give. That is the kind of serving that Jesus has called us to. It's an invitation to greatness. Jesus described serving in Luke chapter 17 in a parable that he told that you may have never heard before because it's probably his most unpopular parable because he's talking about serving. So in Luke chapter 17, verse seven, it says this. Jesus says, will any one of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, Come at once and recline at the table. Will he not rather say to him, after he's been working all day, prepare supper for me and dress properly, because I don't want to look at you all raggedy, and serve me while I eat and drink, and afterward then you can eat and drink. Does he thank the servant because he did what he commanded? This is Jesus talking, by the way. And he's got all the inflection and sarcasm in his voice that I do, just so you know, all right? Make sure we're listening to the same Jesus. But listen to what he says at the end. So you also, when you have done what you were commanded, say this, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. We have only done what you've asked us to do. Listen, it's easy to try to even do stuff for God with an attitude of what's in it for me. It's human nature. It can be how we approach anything. I mean, I don't buy a ticket to a movie or to a concert because I don't want it to be any good. I don't, I don't invest in something because I don't expect a return. And then when those things don't work out, honestly, when something comes up short, we can all find ourselves in a place of discouragement and doubt or even fear, depending on what it is. But when you, you can find greatness that can never be taken away when you serve expecting nothing in return. And so when Jesus says, love your neighbor, You can be thinking to yourself, I'm an unworthy servant, but I'm going to do what my Savior asked. Some of you haven't stepped out to begin to pray or to listen or to eat or even to serve because you feel so unworthy. And can I tell you something? That is okay. You're an unworthy servant, but Jesus has given you an invitation to greatness. 
And because of his death and because of his resurrection, nothing that you have done will cause him to love you less. Nothing that you have done can discount his words, his love, his promises. So if you are here as an unworthy servant and you are very aware of that in this present moment, can I tell you, you are completely in a posture of obedience to Jesus Christ. You are just fine. And even the simple moments are invitations to greatness. My wife this week, she doesn't know I'm going to tell this story. And I told the first service, she comes to the second. So the third service may not hear this, uh, but the first two do. And so that's okay. Um, the whole, it's better to ask forgiveness than permission is a key to our marriage. So I don't know if it works in yours. The, um, some of you hadn't heard that statement before. Use it, okay? Just so you know, on small things. My, uh, <laughs> keep up. My wife was out shopping this week and she saw a lady who was actually holding a sign describing the need in her life. And part of the sign, it said, I'm a widow. And so Angela, being who she is, she went and approached the lady and began to have a conversation with her. I don't know, I didn't ask her because I didn't want her to know I was telling the story. I don't know if she's praying on the way to walk into the lady. That would have been a good thing, honey, if you did that. Like, pray as you walk up to strangers. That would be good. The... Um, So maybe she's beginning to pray and it fits my illustration if she did that. So I'm hoping so. But then I know what she did do. She walked up to the lady and she's just listening to her story. Just listening to her. Just seeing if there's a way she can help. And something very simple occurred. It got put on Angela's heart, I believe, from the Spirit of God. Angela just asked her, can I give you a hug? We're huggers at our house. I don't know about you. We like hugs. We get free hugs. I don't know if you've ever had a hug moment that kind of starts out like this. <laughs> that may be how you're beginning to engage somebody right now. That may be how you're beginning to love the neighbor where you live, work, and play, the person who has just come across your path that God has opened up your eyes to. And if this is how you start... I wasn't there. She would have been way more graceful than this, okay? But if this is how you start, God can use that. And big tears began to flow down this lady's face. She said, my husband died unexpectedly in January and we weren't prepared for it. And I haven't been hugged in months. Just the simplest of things. And simple moments, if your eyes are open to them, can become moments where Jesus is giving you an invitation to be great. And in the church, it's always like, well, someone else will do it. Or it seems like everything's okay. I mean, the church seems to be open whether I'm involved, whether I'm serving or not. It seems like the church is always asking for serving or, or the, maybe the nonprofit down the street, they're always asking for something. And, and at times I feel like the only reason that they want me to serve is because they just want to use me. Can I tell you as one of the pastors here, I really want to use you. 
I don't want to use you up. I don't want to burn you out. But can I tell you, I believe you have something to bring to the table. And I believe that God wants you to serve in a way that only you can. From the most extroverted of people in the room to the introverts in the room. Can I tell you what I would love is not tons of people part of our volunteer team so that we can say, oh, we got big volunteer teams. That's a great thing. What we want is people who are willing more and more. The more of you we have serving, the more opportunity we have to be life on life with the people who come onto this campus. We don't want this to be a big, cold, impersonal place. We want to be about looking people in the eye and saying, God loves you. God gave his one and only son to die for you. Man, I can tell you the people who looked me in the eye as a kid from a divorced home, as an elementary kid in the kids ministry where I grew up, who looked me in the eye and said, God's got purpose for your life. God's going to use you. God's not done with you. To look a student in the eye who maybe is having a difficult time, who comes in here on Wednesday night and not knowing anybody, and someone looks at them and says, hey, you know what? God's got a plan for your life, and I'm so glad you're here. Maybe God gives you the opportunity to stand at the door or in a parking lot, and the last time they were in church, people looked them up one side, down the other, and made them feel so unwelcome. And we say, come on in. We're so glad you're here. That can change a life and even a simple moment. Maybe you're part of a group, and you're helping someone who's teetering on the edge of divorce, or you've got someone in your group who's dealing with cancer or something that's, that's going after their lives, and you have the opportunity to serve them together. And the thing that I hate to hear the most is when someone gets involved and says, well, that wasn't that great. That wasn't that great. You miss the opportunity. You miss the invitation because the invitation to greatness is not what you can get out of this but what you might be able to give to someone who at this point does not even know your name. But the invitation is one to greatness. Can I give you a little prayer that God always answers? Listen to me. God, who can I serve today? We'll have a few thousand people on this campus this weekend. It's pretty cool. The potential of this is amazing. Think about if 5,000 people prayed that prayer, including our kids, because they love doing this stuff too. Six days a week? My math's horrible, but would that be 30,000 times this week just from this room, just from this campus, that the prayer, God, who can I serve today, is prayed? Hello. Can you imagine what might happen if the people of God would answer Jesus' call to greatness in a way that can never be taken away from us? No matter what anybody else says, no matter how anybody ridicules, if we are going with this posture, with this attitude, we are unworthy servants. We are only doing what our Savior has called us to do. He has called us to a life of greatness. In 2005, the band The Fray wrote a song, How to Save a Life. The lead vocalist of that group, a guy by the name of Isaac, and he said, I wrote that song because for a time I was working at a center that was like a home for troubled teens, he would say. And I'm thinking about this one particular kid who there is nothing we could figure out to do to help this kid. He was struggling with addiction. He was struggling with cutting. He was doing, he was just hurting himself in so many different ways. And he says, where did I go wrong? I lost a friend. If I could, I would stay up with you all night. I'd do whatever it would take if I could only learn how to save a life. 
And Jesus gives us the invitation and the opportunity and the formula for how to save a life. Let me show you in John chapter, well, in Mark chapter 10 first, the last statement Jesus says to his disciples, look at this, Mark 10 verse 45, he says this, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He's talked to them about being servants. He's invited them to be a slave. And now he says this, now the son of man has come. Son of man, it's this big grandiose title. It's one that they would know from the Old Testament, particularly from the book of Ezekiel. It has this kind of awesome, apocalyptic sense about it. But Jesus in the flesh uses it not to say that I'm this awesome, grandiose, whatever. But he reminds them, son of God, son of man, I'm one of you. I'm not just telling you what to do, I'm showing you what to do. And what I have called you to do is to give your life that you might save lives over and over and over again. To take the opportunity every day to not sit back and just say, I'm not going to do anything. But rather to have this urgency within us that because of what Jesus has done for us, I can't just sit back and do nothing. I have to do something. And it doesn't matter if I ever get accolades or praise. It doesn't matter if anyone ever knows my name. But I am here to extend the mission of God. And I am here to help save lives because that's what he wants you to do. He is the God that saves, but he needs his people involved to get into the game. I'm here to give my life as a ransom, he said. And I'm asking you to do the same whenever you get the opportunity. And then John chapter 15, verse 12, he says this, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this, than someone lay down his life for his friends. Give your life as a ransom over and over again. You are my friends, he says, if you do what I command you. And no longer do I call you servants, For the servant doesn't know what the master is doing. I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. How is the call of Jesus really a call to greatness? Truly. Is Jesus really calling us to greatness? How is the call of Jesus a call to greatness? Because the call of Jesus is an invitation to friendship with God. Friendship with God. Love one another as I have loved you. I'm going to share everything with you. I want you to receive it. And then I want you to extend it over and again. That same apostle who wrote down what Jesus said in John chapter 15, he wrote it, he wrote it down again in 1 John 3 verse 16, but he's writing it from his perspective this time. And he says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers, for the sisters, for the neighbors, to do whatever it takes. He is the God that saves, but he's asking for his followers to extend that opportunity. Anyone who comes across your path, wherever you live, work, and play, whenever you get the opportunity. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. actually did a sermon on this passage Mark chapter 10, and I'm glad that I found what he wrote after what I wrote because I'd have felt pretty miserable all week because he was an amazing, amazing pastor. 
But I want to give you an excerpt of his sermon and how he recounts this moment of the disciples looking to Jesus and asking to be great. He says this, one would have thought that Jesus would have said, you are out of your place, you are selfish. Why would you raise such a question? But that isn't what Jesus did. He did something altogether different. He said in substance, oh, I see. You want to be first. You want to be great. You want to be important. You want to be significant. Well, you ought to be. If you're going to be my disciple, you must be great. But he reordered priorities and he said, yes, don't give up this instinct. It's a good instinct if you use it right. It's a good instinct if you don't distort it or pervert it. Don't give up. Keep feeling the need for being important. Keep feeling the need for being first. But I want you to be first in love. I want you to be first in moral excellence. I want you to be first in generosity. That is what I want you to do. And then Dr. King would go on to say, everyone can be great because everyone can serve. Jesus offers an invitation to greatness that can never be taken away to every single person in this room and beyond. That's what he died for. That's what he offers us today. If we would take the posture of a servant and grab hold of what he's called us to. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? If you're here today as a follower of Jesus, I just want to ask you to go before God right now with your life, with your marriage, with your family, with your work, with school, with your neighbors. Go before him right now and say, God, show me how to make it great. Maybe in this moment right now, that one next step today could be pray that prayer. God, who do you want me to serve today? Imagine that prayer prayed 10, 20, 30,000 times this week just out of this church alone. We can put truly the greatness of God on display. We have the potential to do it. Perhaps you've been praying for someone for a few weeks. Some of you have been praying for someone for a few months, a few years. Give you this moment to begin to pray for them again. What is God putting on your heart to do? If you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, you walked in here today knowing perhaps loosely the story of God, I want you to know that he is offering you an invitation to greatness as well, but it begins by accepting Jesus as God's one and only son, putting your faith and trust in him. And if you have not done that, I wanna give you the opportunity. Say, how do I do that? You pray to him. I wanna give you the opportunity to pray right now in your own words and ask him to save you. You could pray a prayer that sounds like this. God, I come before you right now believing that you sent your one and only son, Jesus, to die on the cross for me. You're the God that saves. He died on the cross for my sins, for the ways I mess up, for all the ways that I fall short. Thank you that he did that. I receive your forgiveness for all the junk, for all the ways I've messed up. And I believe he's risen from the dead today, that I might have a life like no other. 
God, I barely know what all this means right now, but I believe it and I thank you for it. Amen. And if you prayed that today, as you came in today, you received the Get Connected card, the little fold that you received. There's a little tear out on there. Would you take that? Take it to our help center today. Let them know today I prayed to receive Jesus for the first time. We want to help you get started right. He's the God that saves and he's invited us to be a part of his great work in the world if we'll take hold of it.